Please open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 6. This week is both the uh, third of three weeks reflecting on the spiritual war that we are engaged in and the godly armor that we are given, but it also ends our time in the book of Ephesians, at least for now. Having considered our spiritual enemy, and so our need for godly armor, and then the individual pieces of armor, this week we're looking at the sword of the Spirit and prayer in the Spirit. Let's read Ephesians 6, uh, 17 through 24. Paul writes, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. And kids, I'm sorry, my daughter even collected these and put them right in front of me to do, but I want to go over these because we talked about the armor of God. So Cole, great notes. I love you got the main points and a little icon for each piece of armor. So thank you for that, Cole. Uh, Faye, good job and a nice drawing of a soldier. Uh, this is a very thorough illustration, although you didn't name it, but uh, some great armor there. Aaliyah, I love this illustrated and got the main points. Here's, here's maybe my favorite notes, though, from Ryan Burke, age 44. Uh, and good job, Ryan. You got the main points there, so I'm proud of you for that. Uh, uh, just teasing. Uh, and then Blaze, uh, good job illustrations there. Ethan, you got the main points, but you resisted drawing. It's on the back. I see it now. Uh, and then, uh, uh, again, a good Bible verse someone gave to me, and then some illustrations unlabeled. That's fine. I appreciate the armor. And so I wonder, kids, having drawn the armor... Oh, I've got more here. Luke, sorry, I got some backwards. I did go through all these. Luke, Mac, good set of notes. And then the last one is Jack Lovegren. So thank you guys all for those notes. But I wonder, kids, having drawn all that armor, thought about that armor, if you were going to get sent into war, into battle, what weapon would you want with you? What would you want? What would be powerful enough to protect you and overpower your enemies? Would you take a sword, a rifle, a bazooka? A flamethrower, a Sherman tank, an F-18 jet fighter? Maybe you would take a whole battleship. What would you take with you into war? Well, Paul says we are being sent to battle. We're being sent to a spiritual war, not a flesh and blood war, but a spiritual war against the schemes of the devil. We're not sent out with guns and tanks and fighter jets, but with far more powerful weapons. Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and stand firm in prayer. We're given God's word and prayer. Let's consider these two in turn. Paul's first instruction in our passage is take up 
the Spirit's sword. Take up the Spirit's sword. Paul says the Spirit's sword is God's word. The term Paul uses here, though, is not logos, that word that's used in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. He uses a different Greek term, uh, rhema, if you're interested, which seems to focus on the content, on the message, on the proclamation of God's word. That is to say, the sword of the Spirit is not a Bible sitting on a shelf gathering dust, but it's the Bible being read, the Bible's message being shared with others. It's not scripture in the abstract, but scripture as it's used and read and preached. When scripture's message is proclaimed, that is the Spirit's sword. That's what we're to take up. Why does Paul call God's word the Spirit's sword? Well, for two reasons. First, the Spirit inspired those who have given us this message, the prophets and apostles. Uh, remember, Paul already made the point earlier that the church is founded on the prophets and apostles. So the Spirit inspired those who gave us this message. But it's also the Spirit's sword because the Spirit makes the sword powerful and effective. Scripture is not only inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Scripture's message is made powerful and effective and alive by the Spirit at work within us. See Paul's request there in verse 19 and 20? He says, pray in the Spirit also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew Israel's scriptures inside and out. He seemed to have had large swaths of the Old Testament memorized. And yet he knew that he needed prayer in the Spirit so that he could proclaim that message to those who heard him. Paul traveled to and fro across the Mediterranean world, preaching before synagogues, in the market, before rulers. And yet he knew that he needed prayer for boldness so he could declare God's word. Paul understood that God's word is the sword of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit makes God's word powerful and effective, that the Holy Spirit uses God's word to pierce our souls and change our lives. God's word is the Spirit's sword, and so we must take it up rightly with seriousness. You don't want to cut yourself with a sword, right? You want to be well prepared. And so the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 160, asks, what is required of those who hear the word preached? Right? I am preaching Paul the scripture to you right now. What do you need to do to hear that rightly? The answer, those who hear the word preached should attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. They should examine what they hear by the scriptures. They should receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and converse on it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. The Spirit's, God's word is the Spirit's sword, and so we need to handle it rightly. What does this look like? What kind of power does God's word have that it can be called the Spirit's sword? I mentioned a few weeks ago William Gurnall's 1662 book, The Christian in Complete Armor. Uh, running some 1,050 pages in my edition, a three-volume edition. 
I have not had time to read all of this in preparation for the sermons uh, on, on the arm of God, but I did decide to dip into it for uh, the section on the sword of the Spirit this week. And he suggests four ways that we see the power of God's word. First, God's word has power to compel. It compels us. It captures our imagination. Even those who deny that the Bible is God's word cannot deny that scripture is compelling and contemporary despite being written thousands of years ago. Scripture has a real and profound insight into the human condition. And so scripture is inescapable. Second, God's word has the power to convict. It speaks with moral clarity and authority. And so God's word convicts. In high school, I ran cross country with a guy. uh, He was a year or two younger than me. He might have been a nominal Lutheran, but he certainly did not attend church uh, and didn't seem to have any living faith. So I invited him to come to youth group with me a number of times. And one week he finally agreed. And so I picked him up and and drove to youth group. As far as I could tell, it was a fairly generic sermon. I didn't, there was nothing notable about it to me. And yet it's always stuck in my mind because on the way home, I asked my friend what he thought. And he was visibly angry. How dare the pastor single me out like that? Well, the youth pastor had never met this young man before at all. He didn't know anything about him. But something in that sermon, in the preaching of God's word, convicted and offended my friend. Third, God's word has power to comfort. It doesn't only convict us, but it comforts us. When we're distraught, distressed, depressed, overwhelmed, when we grieve, scripture has the power to comfort When I visit people who are sick or dying or who have lost a loved one, I know that in myself I have little to offer. I can be there with them. I can give them a hug, warm affection. But I have little in myself to offer. But God's word is a balm that brings relief to all of our pains, that brings real comfort. Fourth, God's word has the power to convert. God's word has the power to convert. A group of us from the chapel are reading through Augustine's confessions. And in that work, uh, Augustine, who is a bishop in the 5th century in North Africa, he recounts his life up to the time he became a Christian. Well, uh, it it was quite a prolonged process. He wrestled with Christianity. Some aspects were attractive. Others were off-putting. And so he was on the fence about becoming a Christian for a long period of time, many years. Finally, one day, Augustine was almost despondent. He was sitting alone in a garden, wrestling with this idea of, can I really become a Christian? And he heard some children over a garden wall playing a sort of ring around a rosy game. But it sounded to him like they were saying, take up and read. And he happened to have a copy of the Bible there, and he picked it up and started reading. And as he read, he was converted. God's word has the power to convert even sinful hearts. The history of the church is actually littered with these sorts of stories. In the 16th century, Martin Luther believed in God but feared him. Uh, He didn't have a loving relationship with God. He feared him. And he lectured through the Psalms even and only slowly begun to understand the faith. And then finally one day, Romans 1.17 clicked for Luther. The righteous shall live by faith. Hearing and reading God's word uh, converted Luther's heart. Two centuries later, John Wesley, uh, we find John Wesley, he'd been trying to live a holy Christian life. He'd actually been on missions trips to Native Americans in Georgia. He'd published a whole hymnal at this point, 
and yet he knew himself not yet to be converted. He was depressed and questioned if he really had a living faith. A friend twisted his arm into attending a sort of small group meeting where Romans was read and then Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And here's Luther's, uh, Wesley's own words. Someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through the faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Indeed, uh, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, that passage that, that Wesley was reflecting on, Paul writes, the gospel, the message of God's word, is the power of God for salvation. God's word is powerful. How then do we take up the spirit sword and use it? How do we use the sword of the spirit? Well, a sword is used for both offense and defense. With a sword, you can attack your enemy, but you can also turn away your enemy's attacks. So we must use the sword of the spirit both to defend ourselves and as an offensive weapon. In, uh, how do we use God's word for defense? Well, in Luke 4, we see a good example of this, that Jesus himself uses God's word for defense. Uh, Jesus is led out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil uh, to use his power inappropriately, to worship someone other than the true God. He's tempted to test God. Each time, Jesus responds by quoting a passage from Deuteronomy. He uses God's word to turn away Satan's temptation. Now, Jesus was God's son. He could have just blasted the devil with a laser beam of divinity, but he doesn't. Jesus, God's own son, uses God's word to defend himself. How much more, then, must we Christians take up God's word to defend ourselves? What does this look like in practice? When our spiritual enemies attack with lies and accusations, we turn those attacks away with the word of God. Look back through the book of Ephesians. When we doubt God's generosity, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 1.3. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. When we feel worthless and unwanted, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 1.4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. When Satan points out our sinfulness, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 1.7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. When we question if it's really worth it to live as a Christian, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 1.14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our great inheritance. When we feel our lack of wisdom, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 1.17. God gives the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge. When Satan questions if God really loves us, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 2.5. God loved us with great love. And Ephesians 3.19, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We can't even fathom Christ's love for us. When we wonder if we have anything valuable to offer the church, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And Ephesians 3.7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When we feel overwhelmed by the conflict and strife in the world, 
we remind ourselves of Ephesians 2.14. Jesus himself is our peace and has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. When we're tempted to lash out in anger, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we are unsure how to act, we remind ourselves of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. These are the parries and thrusts of spiritual warfare. This is what it looks like to turn away the enemy's weapons. We store up God's word in our hearts and in our minds. We memorize passages like Jesus obviously did so that when he's in the wilderness, Without a Bible ready to hand, he can nevertheless quote scripture to turn away temptation. That's just 10 examples, but you can think of others. You know the temptations you face, and you can find scriptures uh, to help with that. I guess I don't have this in my notes, but when I was young, uh, maybe 9 or 10, uh, I was excited to see the movie Star Trek Generations that was coming to our local theater. And yet I lied to my parents, and so I was grounded and couldn't go see the movie. And I said, well, is there anything I can do to earn it back? And my parents said, well, if you take this concordance and write out every passage that has to do with lying and truth in scripture, you can do it. And I wrote those down, and I have many struggles with sin, but that's one thing that seeing how seriously God takes lying, seeing how seriously he takes the truth, that's one thing that I was honest with my parents from that point forward. That's defense. What about offense? How do we use God's word for offense? Well, I know lots of Christians are offensive with God's word, that they are obnoxious with it. That's certainly not what we mean. What we have already seen is that the Holy Spirit makes God's word powerful to compel, convict, comfort, and convert. And so we don't need to try to compel others. We don't need to try and convict others with our own wit or intelligence. Even comforting and converting, we don't do that through our own power or wisdom. We don't need to come up with clever arguments. We simply and faithfully offer the message of God's word. Prayerfully offer the message of God's word. And the Holy Spirit uses that message as a powerful sword. We use it offensively when we share the gospel truths with those who need comforted, convicted, converted. Paul's second instruction in this passage is stand with prayer. Stand with prayer. See verses 18 and following. He says, uh, verse 14 already said, Stand therefore, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Note how important uh, Paul sees prayer to be. Verse 18 begins with this participle praying. This describes how we stand. We stand praying. But then Paul focuses for as many verses on describing prayer as he does on describing the whole armor of God. So verses 4 through 17 is the armor. Verse 18 through 20 is prayer. Prayer is important. In these verses, Paul gives us six instructions for prayer. I promise that these won't all be uh, five-minute instructions, hopefully. Uh, first, pray in the Spirit. He says, pray in the Spirit. When I was growing up, I had uh, a set of little green plastic army men. I wonder, did anyone else have, have these? They might not be politically correct anymore, but at least Austin and Nate and I had little green army men. I used to dig trenches in the dirt and build forts out of sticks with them and play with them. 
At that time, my least favorite figure had a backpack walkie-talkie and was holding a phone up to his ear. And compared to the gun and bazooka guys, I thought that was kind of lame, not that exciting. But as I've learned more about World War II, in fact, it turns out that the backpack walkie-talkie was actually one of the Allied forces' great advantages in World War II. Until the invention of the portable radio, it was difficult for commanders to get messages to soldiers on the front line. And in fact, like uh, the Dunkirk uh, evacuation, in part, that was possible because the German forces were so slow at communicating, they couldn't cut off uh, the British forces at Dunkirk. Anyways, we don't need to get into World War II history too much. The point is this. With the backpack walkie-talkie, uh, uh, now units could have instant communication with their commanders. Ground troops could direct artillery fire. They could request air support. And likewise, at first glance, prayer may not be as glamorous as a sword of the Spirit. But when we pray in the Spirit, we have instant communication with God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. With God, the commander of all things. With God, whose power is far more powerful than any air support that we might call in. And indeed, prayer in the Spirit is the only true prayer. Since, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, in Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. It is only praying in the Spirit that we have access to God. Apart from the Spirit, we couldn't climb up to God. We couldn't devise our own way of sending messages to Him. But the Spirit lifts our hearts to God in prayer and exposes our hearts in prayer. So Paul's first instruction is pray in the Spirit. His second instruction is pray at all times. Pray at all times. Just as Jesus shows us what it looks like to take up the Spirit's sword, so he shows us what it looks like to pray at all times. Read through the Gospels and notice how often Jesus is heading off on his own to prayer. God's own Son recognizes that he needs prayer, and so how much more do we need prayer? Now, the truth is of the human heart that we are uh, quick to prayer in times of trouble. When crisis strikes, we're ready to pray. But we should also pray when things go well. We should pray at work and at home. We should pray when we're in the hospital and when we're on vacation. We should pray when we're alone and when we're with others. In the Psalms, David says he prays even when he wakes up in the night. I have to confess, I was up with a puppy and used the restroom, and because it was light at 4 a.m., up several times in the night, and I didn't pray any of those times. I just thought, I need to get back to sleep here. But David says, no, even when I wake up in the middle of the night, I pray. So we pray at all times. Third, Paul says, pray all kinds of prayers. Pray all kinds of prayers. He says, pray with all prayers and supplications. And in Ephesians, we've already seen Paul offering thanksgiving prayers and intercessory prayers. So we don't just bring our needs to God, but we offer all kinds of prayers. And so it's helpful to use a sort of framework. You know, you build a trellis to train a vine. And so we train ourselves to pray by using a sort of framework. One important way is to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's the framework we've been learning together. I mean, most of you already know it, but praying together as a church when I remember, so that especially our kids can learn it by heart. Uh, and, and in the Lord's Prayer, it begins by praising God. And then it brings petitions for God's kingdom, for our needs, for forgiveness, and for deliverance from temptation. It's a broad variety of prayers. Another framework Christians have found helpful is the acronym ACTS, like the book of Acts. ACTS, adoration. 
Prayer rightly begins by recognizing that God is God and we are not. If we recognize who God is, we cannot help but adore and praise Him. And then see confession, that we confess ourselves to be sinners in need of God's grace. A T, thanksgiving, that we thank God for all the good things He has done for us and the ways He has answered our prayers in the past. And then finally, S would be supplication, which Paul uses in our passage. But supplication is kind of a fancy word for saying bringing our needs to God, asking for things we need. So bring all kinds of prayer. Fourth, Paul says, pray with all perseverance. Pray with all perseverance. Uh, Some of our students just finished the track season, and they know when you're running a 1,600-meter dash, four laps, it doesn't matter how fast you run the first three laps if you quit on the fourth lap. Your, Your DNF did not finish if you don't finish the fourth lap. Likewise, in prayer, we can begin the year with New Year's resolutions to be more resolute in prayer this year. But if we don't continue in a daily habit of prayer, of perseverance, where DNF did not finish. But we need to develop our patterns of persistent prayer. Prayer should be natural and consistent. But developing new patterns requires discipline. We must be committed to prayer, even when it seems like God isn't answering our prayers, even when we don't feel like praying. Even when we find no joy in praying, we must nevertheless depend on God. Fifth, Paul says, pray for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. And when Paul says pray for all the saints, he really seems to mean it. In Ephesians, uh, he's already talked about how he offers continual thanksgiving for the church in Ephesus. Well, he's been in prison, and it's been several years since he's been to Ephesus. Surely there are people in that church he hasn't yet met. And nevertheless, he prays for the church in Ephesus. In Romans 1.8, Paul begins by praying for the Roman congregation. It's a church he's never visited before. And likewise, we too should follow Paul's model and pray for all the saints. Churches we've been in in the past, churches we've visited on trips, churches we've never even been to before. This means having a concern for other churches in our area, in our country, and globally. Of course, at some level, these will always be general prayers, but we do live in a remarkable age of communication when we can know what's happening in churches on the other side of the world almost instantly. And this is why I'm so thankful for the work of our missions prayer group, that it's praying for uh, ministries around the world. We're doing what Paul says, pray for all the saints, Uh, and especially the work that Barb does, publishing each month the prayer list so we can know in detail how to pray for saints all around the globe. Sixth, I guess if I'm using fingers, i got to get on my next hand here. Uh, uh, sixth, pray for particular saints. So we pray for all the saints, but then Paul balances that instruction by saying, pray also for me. So we pray for all the saints around the globe, and yet it's right to have specific people that we are continually praying for. It's important particularly to pray for our minister. I know this seems a bit selfish telling you to pray for me, but I need your prayer Because, as you guys know all too well, my own words and my own wisdom is not that great. And what I need is the Spirit to enliven His Word so that it goes out boldly, proclaiming the message of the Gospel. And in verses 21 to 22, Paul says he's going to send this gentleman Tychicus so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. And so it's important to know how particular people are, what they're up to, what their prayer needs are, how we can pray for them. 
And so Kelsey and I, for example, have a list of people we're currently praying for. Some here in this church, uh, some of you even in this room, you may not realize it, but you're on our list that we're regularly praying for. But there's other people we know from Whidbey Island or through Presbytery that are facing various challenges. And so we try to find out how they are when we talk to mutual friends so that we can know how best to pray for them. And then Paul closes his letter with a model prayer in verses 23 and 24. He prays, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He began the letter by wishing the Ephesians uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he concludes his letter on the same note that what we really need is peace with God, with others, and grace from God. I began by asking you what weapon you might take to war. And the reality is we are indeed engaged in battle, in spiritual battle, just as real as any human war that has ever been fought. Paul calls us to stand firm, to hold our ground. And the weapons we are given are God's word and prayer. Here is true power. Here is true strength. Here is true might. Now, you might be here and you're not sure about the claims of Christianity. Maybe someone brought you. uh, You're here with a friend or family. I want to challenge you. It's publicly available. We're saying here is what we have. We have God's word and prayer. Here's the challenge. Read the Gospel of Mark a chapter a day. It's 16 chapters, so two weeks. A chapter a day. And just pray this simple prayer. God, I don't even know if you're there, but if you hear me and you're there, show me your truth in this chapter. And then just sit quietly for a couple minutes. That's the challenge, a chapter a day. And then come meet with me in two weeks, three weeks, and let's talk about what you've read. Others of you have struggles, ongoing struggles with besetting sins, particular temptations that keep coming up. This is our weapons, God's word and prayer. Find verses that deal with the issue that you need to deal with and memorize them. This is how Jesus, our Lord, fought temptation, and so it's how we, too, must fight temptation. Maybe you're here and you're you're burdened by friends and relatives who don't know Jesus, and you think, I want to help them come to know Jesus. What do we have? We have prayer and God's word, and so just pray for them and share this message. Don't get hung up on politics, moral arguments, all those sorts of things. Share this message. It can be something as simple as this. You've been praying for someone for a while, and you say, you know what? I was reading in my devotions this morning, and I was encouraged by this thought from the Bible, and I thought you might be interested in it. It can be as simple as that. It's not hard to do. It's just sharing God's word. The Spirit brings the power. Friends, here is true power. Take up the Spirit's sword. Stand with prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord Christ Jesus, you have ascended into heaven, having defeated the powers of sin and darkness, the powers of Satan and of death. You have left us here to continue uh, battling on in this spiritual battle. And yet you have not left us defenseless. You give us your own armor, your righteousness and truth and salvation, that we can wear it as armor. 
and you'd give us your word as a sword, and you'd give us your spirit, and you'd give us uh, the ability to talk to you in prayer through the spirit. We ask, Lord, that we would be diligent in making use of these means, that we would not neglect reading your word, meditating on it, memorizing it. We ask that we we ask that we would not neglect prayer. Lord, I confess that I've felt sluggish in my own prayers this week, and yet hold me steadfast in praying. I suspect there's others who may feel the same way, tired, groggy during their prayers, and I ask that they too would cling to you in prayer. As we meditate on your word, use your powerful word to change our lives by your Holy Spirit. Amen.